Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from TUSER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. It's good to have your company. Well, let's face it, the news lately is often bad, but in the case of international news, it's almost always bad. Not just bad, but bad people doing terrible things with little in the way of consequences and often very little in the way of justice. The cause for justice is often a long and difficult one, but on the international level, it is more often than not quite impossible. However, our guest this week believes he has an answer. Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, a Plan B for Human Rights, is the new book from Jeffrey Robertson. With the International Criminal Court stalling, he sees countries using targeted sanctions as a new way forward. For those unaware of his pioneering and groundbreaking work on the international stage, Jeffrey Robertson QC is a human rights barrister, author, broadcaster and academic. He grew up in Sydney but now lives in the United Kingdom. He's published 18 books and in court has defended clients as far-ranging as The Sex Pistols to Julian Assange to Armenia. A quick preface, though, just before we begin. My conversation with Jeffrey took place earlier this month, so it was just before the extraordinary events that have since unfolded in Gaza between Israeli and Palestinian militants, in which at least 219 civilians were killed. It also predated the shocking tactics that we've seen used by Alexander Lukashenko's government in Belarus to detain the opposition activist Roman Protasevich and his companion Sofia Sapega. Here is my conversation with Jeffrey Robertson, QC. Jeffrey Robertson, thanks for joining us on Fourth Estate. It's a pleasure, Tina. Before we turn to your book, I'd, I'd like to first discuss Julian Assange. You've worked on his legal team and know him quite well. Uh, in your opinion, should Assange be freed by now? He should. He should have walked out of court when they declared him a suicide risk and that they wouldn't extradite him to America. And there was some hope that he would, that he'd be back in Australia in quarantine, which is a form of imprisonment, but only for two weeks. However, sadly, the Biden administration decided to appeal. It was a very clearly argued decision by a conservative judge who heard Uh, argument and evidence for four weeks and then decided there was no doubt that Julian is on the autistic spectrum and had the determination to commit suicide where he sent to the United States where he would face a trial uh, which in a few years time which would result in a probably a 50 years prison sentence 35 years his associate Chelsea Manning received, so he would be regarded as the most serious malefactor, and he'd go to prison for 50 years, and and Julian Assange will commit suicide uh, as rather than have that fate. So on that basis, uh, the Americans have decided to appeal. Now, the reason for that, which may lead to criticism of the Biden administration is or was confided to me by a friend who was very high up in the Obama administration Mm -hmm. a few years ago. He said, we don't want Assange, Mm. but the Pentagon does. And the Pentagon wants to deter 
other whistleblowers, other people who expose the misbehavior, criminal behavior in some cases of US troops. And uh, so that was the force. So the, the Pentagon's motive was very much uh, about making an example of him. Absolutely, mm. of, of this journalist who mm. embarrassed the military. I mean, Australian journalists have been embarrassing the military, gosh, since Keith Murdoch, Rupert's dad, mm. uh, embarrassed <laughs> the British by exposing them at Gallipoli. And we've had other great journalists, Phil Knightley, uh, who wrote Truth, the First Casualty, Murray Sale, Bruce Page, Jane Perez. You know, the, uh, that's a stock in trade of Australian journalists. And uh, for that, Julian Assange in that category, indeed, Phil Knightley went uh, as a bail surety. And when Assange jumped bail, um, he was forced to pay £15,000 in uh, his bail money. And he said it was money well spent because one needs whistleblowers, you need leaks, you need exposure of misbehavior by armed forces. And that is why uh, the Americans are determined to crush and indeed to kill Julian Assange. Well, I'm... You mention uh, you mention Australian journalists and whistleblowers. I did want to ask: Do you view Julian Assange as a journalist or a whistleblower? And look, at, the, at this point, does it even matter? Because there's a lot of debate, obviously, in Australia and Australian media about about him. And I'd like to get your Is thoughts. That, yeah, I mean, obviously, the publisher, mm. and he may be using different forms, but he publishes what he thinks is newsworthy. And that seems to me a pretty good definition of a journalist. Of course, it mm. doesn't always help him when he uh, published the stuff about the Democrat uh, committee rigging the odds in favour of Hillary. Uh, and against uh, the, the left, he was doing, wasn't doing himself any favours. Mm. But uh, he thought it important and five Democratic uh, committee members had to resign because of the way he exposed them. I think if the CIA had any real intelligence, they would feed him some of the stuff they know about Putin mm -hmm. to see whether he would publish it. And I, I think he has enough integrity to do so. Are you hopeful that not he might anything at the moment? Right, right. Are you hopeful that he might soon be free? Well, we can only fight. I mean, my chambers is acting for him, and he's got the best legal support at the moment. They've won the case so far, and uh, I hope they'll win the appeal. Otherwise, he'll be tied up in a COVID-ridden prison uh, for years. Mm because uh, there are a lot of other points that can be argued, but this central point seems to me uh, the basic one, and it's one that the Australian government, if it had any gumption, would uh, support. The man is in danger, and uh, the government should be bringing such pressure as it can to bear, but it doesn't. This government seem to be interested in Australian citizens who are in peril, 
see those in India whom it's refusing to bring back other <laughs> other than to prison <laughs> if they if they dare return to their native land so uh, it's not helping well, look, lastly, before we move on, uh, you know, you mentioned the Obama administration and that they didn't really want uh, Assange, uh, you know, due to also the, I guess, the New York Times problem as well. But that changed yes. under the, the Trump administration. Do you have any feelings of how the Biden administration may act on Assange if he's well, not yes, freed? Obama exactly was reluctant because of the difficulty of mm. distinguishing uh, this Australian publisher from the publisher of the New York Times, which also, of course, published a lot of his discoveries. But uh, it, the Trump people had some uh, other lawyers who invented this theory that the First Amendment, which, of course, is the great protection of American journalism and, and all those who assisted, uh, didn't apply other than to Americans, so that all the Australian, British uh, and foreign journalists who write for American newspapers don't have the protection that Americans would have under the First Amendment to the Constitution. So that's the theory in which they hope to distinguish uh, Assange from the New York Times, which published his revelation. Your new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights, it's a positive look at one of the more depressing parts of, of, of human affairs. Before we discuss your plan B, let's unpack why we need one. Among the many key moments in human rights you identify, there are two key ones. So the Nuremberg Trials and the formation of the International Criminal Court. Why were those two important for the fight for human rights on the international stage? Well, the Nuremberg trial was vital because it established, created international criminal law and the concept of the crime against humanity. Before then, you could kill as many of your own people as you liked without uh, being subject to international law. That's what the Nazis did with their own Jewish people. Mm. But the uh, trial at Nuremberg established that those who do commit crimes against humanity will be punished on earth and not in hell. So uh, that was a great moment which began international criminal law. But, uh, of course, the world went on mm. with locked in the Cold War, and it wasn't until the 90s, with the uh, dreadful atrocities in the Balkans and in Rwanda, that the idea came back of, of having criminal courts, international criminal courts. And I was president of one of the more successful ones in Sierra Leone, which put Charles Taylor behind mm -hmm. bars, where he still is. And so it looked as though this was the successful way to go. We had <clears throat> international criminal law defined at Nuremberg. We, had, we could set up courts where perpetrators could be tried and punished. But uh, it didn't work out like that. After the International yeah. Criminal Court was set up, in 2002, everyone thought it would do the job. 
And I think the saddest moment in my career in international human rights was to think back to the streets of Damascus in 2011 with the protesters holding up signs, Assad to the Hague. <laughs> we had created expectations that were beyond our capacity because what happened then was that the Security Council was riven. It was poleaxed uh, because the big powers would veto any action against any country or government that was an ally. So the attempts to uh, Britain made to have the case referred to the ICC prosecutor of Assad were always vetoed by Russia because they mm -hmm. wanted Assad's support for a seaport on the Mediterranean and for their navy. So, and that will always be the case. China, Russia, or America. America has been uh, astute to veto any attempt to hold Israeli forces to account for atrocities in mm -hmm. Palestine. So, um, Plan A is... Uh, has, has faltered and the only people who are in prison as a result of the ICC are mid-African warlords. Now, it's important to put them in prison. I'm not suggesting we abandon the ICC, but we have to devise another way of dealing with perpetrators who are otherwise untouchable. So do you now see the grand projects of the 20th century, starting with the League of Nations, uh, building up to the UN and ICC as failures? No, I think the League of Nations mm. certainly was a failure, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the UN is increasingly important to deal mm. with issues like climate change. I think that now the, the problem is that we live in a world where 54% of its people live under authoritarian rule. There are 92 autocracies in the world, and <laughs> liberal democracy is uh, in difficulties. Putin says it's an, an anachronism, and President Xi seems to take the same view. So in fighting back for our values, as open societies, uh, we have to find a different way. And frankly, as I return to Australia mm. and hear commentators say the war drums are beating, <laughs> for heaven's sake, we, we can't. Regime change is not an option mm. because those regimes who want to change are full of nuclear weapons. No, we have to find a way of asserting our own values and ensuring that those perpetrators, individuals, we're not talking about country mm. sanctions because they just impoverish the people, but individuals who can be identified as perpetrators um, must be sanctioned by sanctioned. I mean, excluded, no, no visas, no... Uh, freezing their assets, not allowing their children mm -hmm. into our schools or their parents into our hospitals or mm. them into our casinos, which <laughs> they seem to want. It's not in prison. They're not going to end up in prison, mm. but they're going to end up 
with less profit and and with some deterrence because sanctions, if they're coordinated, and there are now 31 democrat, democratic companies, countries which have so-called Magnitsky mm. laws, Australia may be the 32nd, um, we, uh, we can coordinate action and make life difficult. Okay, let, well, let's turn to Plan B. You, you see a way out of this stalemate through Liberal countries adopting Magnitsky-type laws. Firstly, who was uh, Sergei Magnitsky mm-hmm. and what are the laws that his death uh, have inspired? Well, he was George Floyd without the cameras, without the pictures. He was beaten to death mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of people um, in police cells and prisons. He was not a dissident. He was a loyal Russian. He was uh, mm-hmm. a tax lawyer, of all things. And he came across a big tax fraud, which he blew the whistle on. And the very people that he identified as the perpetrators were policemen who managed to put him in prison, where <coughs> severe judges refused him bail despite his illness. And uh, doctors, negligent doctors in the prison system didn't treat him. And he was finally beaten and died. So uh, his client, Bill Browder, extraordinary American, um, decided to commemorate him. Mm-hmm. I acted for Bill in a uh, libel lawyer. And he went to John McCain and then to Barack Obama, and they passed the first Magnitsky Act, which listed the Lickspittle judges and the uh, negligent doctors and the crooked cops and uh, who were involved in Magnitsky's death. That was Mm -hmm. in 2012. And then in 2016, Obama again brought in a bigger act that applied other than to Russia. And then Canada followed, then Britain followed last year, and then all 27 countries of the European Union uh, followed. So it's now, and Australia Mm -hmm. may follow, because there was a joint parliamentary committee report which recommended that we should. So we can join uh, this Magnitsky movement and make life difficult, <laughs> just how difficult it uh, How successful has America's Magnitsky laws been at stopping the people that it's targeting? Well, it can cause extreme embarrassment mm. the wretched Carrie Lam, who is the satrap, I suppose, of Hong Kong destroying democracy, was sanctioned and she <laughs> complained bitterly that she mm. couldn't use her credit cards because even those drawn on Hong Kong banks right. because of the power of the U.S. Treasury and the American dollar. She had to wheel her, <laughs> her salary home. She gets about $700,000 a year, and that, change, that transfers to about $5 million Hong Kong dollars, mm-hmm. and it's cluttering up her home. She complained and uh, causing great merriment among her victims on social media. But it can, so, you know, sanctions can be 
effective in that sense. It can stop companies that deal with slave cotton uh, from Xinjiang, the mm-hmm. Uyghur, a place where they're using Uyghurs for slave labor. Uh, the sanctioning of the Chinese company that that sells that cotton abroad mm-hmm. has led to various well-known brands like Nike and Adidas and fashion brands to actually drop to source their cotton elsewhere. And that's why China is very angry. But it will have to suffer. These and its people will, mm-hmm. or at least those of them who are involved in using slave labor, will be unable to profit. Well, China presents a number of challenges for the liberal order and, and human rights in general. Do you think Magnitsky-type laws are, are one of the answers? Well, they're the only answer that mm. I can see. Mm. We can't bomb China mm. and all this talk <laughs> of <laughs> war drums. Right. We'll have to start by bombing Darwin. Because <laughs> <laughs> they owe the port. We'll be bombed. Right. Darwin. So uh, that's absurd. Uh, no, we, we can only... Uh, ostracize, mm. I suppose. It's a, a, we go back to the old Roman idea mm. of ostracizing bad people. Well, the, the plight of the Uyghur people is a serious issue facing the liberal West. We obviously can't ignore the issue, but how should we or, or can we act? Well, as I say, by the way that America and Britain have started to act in Europe, by identifying individuals, one of them the Communist Party Politburo member who's in charge of the area, others who've been involved in setting up the concentration camps, and the company, most importantly, the uh, parastatal company that sells all the cotton. And once you Magnitsky them, then you... (coughs) you create a reaction in their Western clients and they won't deal with them. Let's turn to Australia. You, you think we're in a position to have the strongest Magnitsky laws. Why so? And, and what do you want to see Australia do? Well, I, I point out in the book, and perhaps the reason I wrote it, was that Magnitsky laws are in their infancy and we need to develop them. And so the opportunity is for Australia to have the best. The problem at the moment is that they are entirely decided by governments. They are, and there is a danger that uh, mm-hmm. they become instruments of foreign policy rather than of human rights. So you need some objectivity and uh, the Australian Joint Committee came up with what I think is a good idea of having an expert panel which will make recommendations to the minister after hearing evidence. So it will be an opportunity for NGOs like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch, an opportunity for Uyghur groups and other ethnic groups to give evidence and to have recommendations made by this expert panel to the minister. So it is less, I don't trust diplomats because they want a quiet life. (laughs) And uh, 
they tend to be opposed to any form of sanctions, except <clears throat> we have this ludicrous system of declaring diplomats persona non grata. So whenever Russia kills someone in Britain and is exposed for it, uh, the British order out, declare persona non grata, four or five Russian spies, and then Russia does exactly the same thing, the same number, and uh, it's just a diplomatic game. It uh, doesn't get anywhere. So uh, I think the idea of having real sanctions which deprive uh, people of their profits and their possibilities. I mean, I talk of train drivers to Auschwitz being doctors and lawyers uh, who like going to the West and like having professional conferences and so on and will be uh, hurt or hit by such sanctions. So I think they will have an effect. I always remember Boris Nemtsov, who was mm -hmm. the courageous uh, politician before Navalny, before mm -hmm. he was assassinated, who said to Britain, if you want to stop Putin poisoning your people with Novichok, uh, stop his oligarch, oligarch mates sending their children to Eton. And that's uh, pretty much sums it up. What are your thoughts then on uh, a number of uh, different NGOs have uh, recently written a letter to the UN demanding that they impose sanctions on Myanmar. What do you see the likelihood of this, uh, of the UN acting on, on this letter? This is a case, I think, for Magnitsky laws. Mm -hmm. The generals who took over and destroyed democracy in Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma, mm -hmm. are certainly suitable for sanctions and a number of countries have sanctioned them as individuals so uh, but what will really hurt is sanctioning the companies that they own or have interest in and i think that is the plan now that is being developed mm -hmm. to identify the companies that are behind them and to impose Magnitsky-style sanctions, which will stop them earning money for the generals. So you can't go and invade Myanmar to restore democracy. What you can do is make life difficult for those mm -hmm. who have destroyed it. With other countries adopting these types of laws, do you, do you now see a new internationalism here? But I guess, with a, a more national flavour? I do see the possibility mm -hmm. of a new internationalism developing. But, of course, why it's developing is that we can use our national laws rather than international law, mm -hmm. because international law isn't working. International law has given us, if you like, the principles on which to act but it has no enforcement. So we can enforce our national laws in ways which, if coordinated, will cause 
some grief mm -hmm. to perpetrators of human rights abuses and act as some deterrent. The key or Plan B uh, is basically liberal democracies working together. However, democracy as a force for good across the world isn't really in the strongest shape at the moment. And while America is well on the way to being somewhat rehabilitated, I think it's, well, mm. I'm not sure if it's safe to say, I hope it is. It is really only one election away from being back on the critical list, let's be honest. So populism and extremism is on the rise across the world. Are you concerned at all about liberal democracies being able to sustain themselves during this century? Liberal democracies have two enemies. Mm -hmm. Exterior enemies, like mm -hmm. Russia and China, but they also have internal Those within. enemies. And I would loosely call the alt-right, mm -hmm. which is a theory that has been promoted by Steve Bannon and other quite clever people, and is now rampant in Poland, in um, Hungary. In Hungary, they close universities that are attached to George Soros. In mm -hmm. Poland, they stop the media from even mentioning Greta Thunberg. <laughs> and, in, and they're trying, as alt-right people do, to uh, manipulate the judiciary, to attack the intellectuals, the intellectual elites, which they see which are really the, <clears throat> the foundations of liberal democracy, the universities, the judiciary, and so forth. So, uh, yes, there are certainly dangers. Mr. Trump acquired 70 million-odd votes and may come again. So it's wise to be concerned about alt-right figures and voices within the country that want a democracy, certainly, but an illiberal one. Mm. Well, lastly, Australia has its own human rights problems. Just off the top of my head, we still have way too many deaths in custody. We've done very little to assist Julian Assange. We have an innocent family locked away on Christmas Island. And just this week, we've basically turned our collective backs on the most fundamental rights and privileges of being an Australian citizen with, I think it's 9,000 Aussies in India blocked from returning. Do you see these as a sign of a very deep erosion of basic rights in Australia? Or are these just unfortunate hiccups in one of the leading liberal democracies in the world? Well, I'd like to think that we are a leading liberal democracy, but when we ignore the judgments of the Human Rights Commission, uh, we're not, and we'll be attacked for hypocrisy by China. How dare you lecture us, they'll say, mm. when you don't even allow your own citizens the right to return to their home. Citizens who are in peril and you threaten to lock them up for five years. Mm. So I think that it's important for Australia to maintain its the place that it won in 1945 at the conference in San Francisco, which set up the UN under Dr. Ebbett. He was always seen as the great spokesman for the middle-ranking countries in the world. And uh, Australia only had 7 million people in those days. So mm. it's important to retain that 
uh, and it's sad to see this particular government, especially one that parade or prime minister who parades his Christian principles, so ignorant of the parable of the Good Samaritan and so mm. failing to rescue his own people in peril. So when it could so easily be done, we send, we, we keep sending planes to India which return empty. So <laughs> that's the, uh, my concern is that Australia's power and place, soft power in the world, will fritter away unless it can be seen to enact, to, to follow human rights principles in its own country. Well, you mentioned the blowback or, or criticism we'll no doubt receive from China. I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on, on that uh, exchange last year between our two countries when following the findings of the Brereton Report, a Chinese diplomat tweeted out what was basically a, a fake image of an Australian soldier holding a knife to an Afghan child's neck. I did feel at the time that there, there was more outrage that China would dare do something like that, given their own government's checkered record of, of human rights violations, more than there was really actual findings of the report, which were that Australian soldiers were involved in the murder of 39 civilians off of the battlefield, essentially in cold blood. Propaganda should always be called out, and that was clumsy mm. and stupid propaganda. Mm. I think Australia got through the Brereton report mm -hmm. by setting up and by determining to prosecute. So there's a prosecution agency which is now uh, considering the evidence against a number of soldiers. And that is good because that's what a decent country does. So I don't think Australia can be criticised on that score because it has been exposed mm -hmm. and it's doing something about it. Jeffrey Robertson, thank you very much for being on Fourth Estate. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Jeffrey Robertson's new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights, is available now. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the community radio network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. You can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.